Was the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank the beginning of the 2023 U.S. banking crisis? Has quantitative tightening ended? Are we in quantitative easing number five? Could this spread throughout the U.S. or the global banking system? Was this caused by the government or bad behavior of banks? Is the dollar going up or down as a result of what's happening? Could this trigger a much anticipated recession in America? And how does this impact Fed's tightening and inflation Fed is meeting this week? Did the Fed finally break something with its aggressive rate rises? This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host of my worst investment ever podcast, and also from the Become a Better Investor community. Let's get started. So, what happened here? First, we start with the situation of Silicon Valley Bank uh, going bust. Now, what happened in the case of Silicon Valley Bank was that, first of all, there was a huge influx of deposits into Silicon Valley Bank over the last couple of years, as well as the whole banking sector in the US. Where did these deposits come from? I mean, weren't we in the middle of a COVID crisis? Well, in the US, those deposits came from the U.S. government pumping out money into the hands of individuals and companies through all of the various and massive stimulus programs. Those stimulus packages passed by Congress went into the deposits and went into the banks as deposits from individuals and from companies. So boom, you have a huge it's almost like you imagine a snake eating a huge animal and you watch the snake digest that animal as this huge bulge of deposits go into the banking system from this um, from this uh, programs that were launched by the US government. This is that starts to lead to some unintended consequences. But before we look at that, consider the fact that most countries around the world couldn't do this. Uh, Thailand, where I am right now, there's no way the government could print all that money because the currency would have collapsed. And therefore, most governments did not have the um, the privilege, let's say, of having a reserve currency asset and the ability to print as much money as needed. And so America is quite unique in this. And so that's one of the reasons why what's happening uh, in the US is may not spread to such an extent globally. So let's look at Silicon Valley Bank for a second and, and ask the question, what did they do when they got all these deposits? Well, they didn't have enough loans to, enough loans available to lend this money out to. Remember, a bank does basically three things with the deposits that it receives. Number one, it can hold it as cash. Number two, it can buy some sort of security or investment, like a security that could be traded. So that's kind of a short-term thing that they can do with the money. And then the third thing that they do, which is the traditional business of a bank, is they lend out money. Now, if they if they had a lot of opportunities to lend that money out, they would have locked that money up in loans. Now, imagine that a bank had 5% cash, 5% securities, and 90% loans. If people wanted to pull their deposits out of the bank, the bank would have 5% of the money available of their total, let's say, deposits, the total assets of the bank, 5% would be available to repay deposits in cash. And then another 5%, they could sell those securities and repay deposits. Now, they could also go to the 
government to the Fed and borrow some money to repay deposits to prevent a bank run. But it's not so easy to get out of loans, right? If if you've lent money to a company and you need that money back, you can't get that. So the loans are very illiquid, but securities are very liquid. Now, let's add into this that uh, after the 2008 crisis, basically the US government came up with new regulations that tried to force the banks to hold more cash and more securities, with the idea being that the combination of cash and securities would be highly liquid assets. And basically, the banks would then be able to pay back if any depositors came, they would be able to pay back. In fact, at the peak of, um, let's say, high uh, liquidity of the banks, you had almost 20% of the US banking sector's uh, assets in cash and almost 20% in securities. That means almost 40% of the bank's balance sheet was in highly liquid uh, investments and or assets. Now, also what the US government did is they said, look, if you buy US treasuries, and remember the US government was borrowing tons of money and so they needed the banks to own these treasuries. If you buy treasuries, we won't count, we'll count them as purely risk-free, meaning that you don't have to put aside any capital for that. So they provided an incentive for the banks to own government securities, knowing that number one, those are risk-free assets. And number two, knowing that the federal government was borrowing a ton of money and they needed the banks, not just the Fed, to buy those uh to, to, to buy the bonds that the treasury was issuing. So that brings up a question. Wait a minute, Andrew, I thought that US treasury bonds were risk-free and now we have all this risk that we're talking about. Well, where US treasuries are risk-free is they are credit risk-free. In other words, it's almost impossible to imagine that the US government wouldn't print the money needed to pay back the debts that they're owed. Now, when they print money to pay back debts that they're owed, of course, they're devaluing the US dollar and the currency, but still, you're going to get paid back. So when we talk about risk-free, we're talking about credit risk-free. That doesn't mean that they're not, uh, they're not interest rate risk-free. They're not interest rate risk-free. In other words, what does that mean? That means that if a bank, now keep in mind that the treasury rate for a 10-year bond going back a few years was at about 1%. That was a 10-year treasury bond. It was incredible. In fact, I remember my niece getting a, a mortgage at 2.9%. It was incredible how low interest rates were. So now uh, imagine that, that a bank bought a huge portfolio of these 1% government bonds. And then all of a sudden, the Fed starts to raise interest rates. Let's say that you're owning three-year government bonds, and then the Fed starts raising interest rates, and all of a sudden, uh, someone out in the market could buy a three-year government bond at a let's say four or five percent interest rate, and now you're you're holding one that only pays one percent. Holy crap! Yours is not worth that much compared to others. And in order to get other people to buy the bond that you may want to sell, you're going to have to reduce the price. And when you sell your bond, you're going to reduce the price and it's going to be a reduction in price somewhere between 10% and 30 or 40%, depending on the maturity. Now, in this case, we said three-year maturity. And so that means probably a 10 to 20% loss on that bond. So when the so that brings us to the question, did the Fed cause this problem? Well, yeah, I think so. Basically, what the Fed did is the Fed aggressively raised interest rates. 
knowing that all the banks <clears throat> were sitting on a large amount of U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, in the case of uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, whenever you own a bond and you're exposed to interest rate risk, even with a risk-free bond, there still is interest rate risk. So what is the risk management of a bank? Well, the risk management of a bank basically looks at all these different risks and says, how do we hedge this particular risk? So <clears throat> technically, the bank's not really in the business of trying to make a lot of money on this. They're in the business of raising deposits and lending those out. So what they want to do is protect the the, the risk uh, on their portfolio so that the value of the bond doesn't collapse. And then all of a sudden, the bank is wiped out. Well, basically, what happened is that many of them, uh, the larger ones in particular, did uh, do some hedging to try to cover this risk. Now, in the bank's financial statements, you can see analysis, the type of analysis that they do, which is looking at interest rate risk. And they basically say, if the interest rates go up by 100 or 200 or 300%, it would cause this amount of potential interest rate risk. Now, if you're holding a bond to maturity, then it's a little bit different, right? Let's just say that you as an individual bought a US government bond that's a 10-year bond, and you're going to hold it for 10 years, and it's earning 1%. Now, if U.S. Treasury bonds, 10-year uh, Treasury bonds now are trading at 5%, if you wanted to sell that bond into the market, yes, you're going to experience a loss because that bond's no longer attractive because it's only paying 1%. So you got to reduce the price to equalize the return of that bond between this uh, from 1% to 5%. However, if you say, well, I don't really care. I bought this bond for 10 years. I'm going to hold it for 10 years. That 1% return I'm getting is good for me. And I'm not going to ever sell this. And you're just going to hold to maturity. Then you are not going to experience this risk or this lower price. In fact, you're going to get all of your money back. <clears throat> and so when you get all of your money back at the end of the 10 years, you have gotten a pure 1% return. And that's part of what Silicon Valley Bank had done is that they had put their uh, <clears throat> the excess liquidity that they had, they had put into the um, into hold the maturity bonds. Maybe they were three years. I haven't looked at the the maturity of them, but let's say it was three years uh, U.S. government bonds, and they're going to hold to maturity. Well, when you hold to maturity under U.S. accounting rules, you don't need to account for this interest rate risk because you're going to be holding to maturity. And <clears throat> there's a lot of debate about. Um, if, if you were to put that security up for sale, that's called available for sale securities. And for that one, you are going to have to market to market and say, well, there's a big loss on this. But if you hold it to maturity, then you don't have to. Um, well, also, what you're doing is you're not marking it to market through the P&L. You're marking it to market through the balance sheet and through the equity section of the balance sheet. So it's not as visible, but you can still see the damage that it can do to the balance sheet. So no problem. Silicon Valley Bank received a lot of deposits. They have a lot of customers and they're happy with their deposits there. And then, But something went wrong. And when that one thing went wrong, all of these friends who are all tech startups and tech companies all of a sudden told each other, hey, take your money out. There's a risk at Silicon Valley Bank. And all of a sudden, Silicon Valley Bank had a run on the bank, meaning that its deposits were withdrawn super fast. So what did they do? They sold their available for sale 
uh, securities first because they've already marked down the value of those. So they didn't have any major loss from those. And then they had to sell eventually their hold to maturity sales. It's just the same as if you were owning a 10-year bond. You're not going to sell it. You're going to hold it for 10 years, but you have an emergency in your family and you have to sell it. If you are forced to sell it, this is kind of a liquidity event where you need the liquidity. And what happens is that Silicon Valley Bank had to start taking losses on their hold uh, to maturity securities. It's a debate because I know in in EU and in other places, um, the banks are basically required uh, to show the potential losses on their hold to maturity. They're also, uh, there's other issues about how you hedge that and how you report the hedging on it. But for this purposes, let's just understand it like this. Now, interesting to see that there was a, uh, <clears throat> there was a statement done, or let's say uh, by the, uh, on the 12th, I believe it was, uh, let me just see when this statement was. One second. So basically, there was a speech given by one of the central bankers who was talking about how there is losses in the system. And this is remarks by uh, FDIC chairman Mark Martin Grunberg at the Institute of International Bankers. And he gave this presentation on March 6th, so before Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapse happened. And what did he say? I think the most important thing that he said is the following. Uh, <clears throat> the current interest rate, this is, I'm going to quote from what he, what was um, published. The current interest rate environment has had dramatic effects on the profitability and risk profile of banks, funding and investment strategy. First, as a result of the high interest rates, long-term maturity assets acquired by banks when interest rates were lower are now worth less. That's what I'm saying that, <clears throat> They're worth less because there's new bonds out there that are much higher returning. Uh, the result is that most banks have some amount of unrealized losses on securities. The total of these unrealized losses, including securities that are available for sale or held to maturity, was about $620 billion at year-end 2022. Unrealized losses on securities have meaningfully reduced the reported equity of the banking industry. Okay, so... This is one of the things that I was saying for held to maturity, the reduction in the value of those bonds gets marked into equity. For available for sale, it goes into the PL. But either way, it's a 60, $620 billion loss that's um that's unrealized. And what he was highlighting is that if this was realized and they were forced to sell these then you've got a problem. And that is the bank capital uh, could be hit very hard. So they were already raising some red flags about this long before. So then <clears throat> what happened when we saw uh, the, the, in, the whole thing kind of collapse, right? Basically on March, so that was March 6th. Then on March 12th, there was a joint statement by Treasury, uh, Federal Reserve and FDIC. That means uh, Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell and FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg, who I just mentioned was talking on the 6th. So just six days later, they said, today we're making, uh, we are making, we are taking decisive action. I'm, I'm quoting from the, the announcement, decisive action to protect the U.S. economy by strengthening public confidence in our banking system. 
So this is right when uh, Silicon Valley Bank was happening. This step will ensure that the U.S. banking system continues to perform its vital role of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strong and sustainable economic growth. After rec receiving a recommendation from the boards of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and consulting with President Secretary uh, Yellen approved actions enabling the FDIC to complete its resolution of Silicon Valley Bank in California in a manner that fully protects all depositors. Depositors will have access to all of their money starting on Monday with no losses, uh, no losses associated with the res resolution will be borne by taxpayers. Now that part right there is just kind of a blatant, uh, <laughs> I don't know what they call it these days, misinformation, disinformation, lie. N of course, everything that the federal government does is supported by taxpayers. And the result of this is that, and if they say that this money is coming out of a fund that the banks have contributed to, the other banks, well, also that comes from the back of the taxpayers. So what we have here is the Fed coming in or and the, the Treasury and the FDIC and basically saying, everybody's going to get their, all depositors are going to get their money back. Now, this is a big problem. Why is this a problem? Because basically only a small number of depositors at Silicon Valley Bank were actually guaranteed by the FDIC, the Federal, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And yet here we have a blanket guarantee that was just announced. And this is a particularly big moral hazard. Now, some people would say, well, you have to do that, Andrew, or otherwise money's going to come out of every bank that's afraid and they're going to move money either home and under their mattress, or they're going to go and put their money into a bigger bank that they trust more. That goes into a whole nother thing that the US government did, which was after the 2008 crisis, they build up banks to be um, too big to fail or systematically uh, important banks, which was kind of a you know, a way of really messing up the uh, the risk situation of how to price risk, how to assess risk. Uh, now, <clears throat> also, uh, the Fed on March 12th, now this is an important point because the Fed knows that other banks are sitting on unrealized losses related to their bond portfolio of US Treasury bonds because they're holding 1% yielding bonds. And the Fed has increased interest rates up to almost 5%. And the result of that is that they have massive unrealized losses. We've seen the chairman of the FDIC say that those losses amount to about $620 billion in his estimate at the end of 2022. Just imagine that there's probably more that come out um, you know, from under the woodwork. Now, also on March 12th, the Federal Reserve Board announces it will make addition, available additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. Okay, so this is where the government comes in and says, we're going to protect the whole system now. How are we going to do that? The Fed set up, so I'm reading from the announcement, the Fed set up a borrowing, a new borrowing facility called the Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP, offering loans of up to one year in length to banks. And basically, these banks can pledge their U.S. treasuries, agency debts, and mortgage-backed securities. These are the, all the main securities. They're not corporate bonds. They are government-related bonds or government-guaranteed bonds as collateral. And so the fund has 100, uh, $125 billion it can borrow and another 100 billion from the treasury. So, but the kicker is, remember, 
all of these unrealized losses are because the value of those bonds that were yielding 1% has collapsed. And those bonds now are uh, maybe 20, 30% down in their price. This is the kicker. And that is the assets, they say, the assets will be valued at par so that banks won't have to sell US tre treasuries at a loss in order to redeem deposits, as was the case with Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. What did they do? Number one, they they gave kind of an implicit guarantee of all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. And then the next thing they did is they said, if any other bank is facing this problem and you've got massive losses, good news, we'll help you hide those losses. How do we help you hide those losses? Because we'll buy your, your bond that's worth, let's say, $80, $80, let's say, and we'll buy for 100 and we'll hold those losses for a year off your balance sheet. This is a very sneaky way of basically trying to prevent losses from hitting the balance sheets of the banks and collapsing the whole system. And so what they've done in this case is they've come up with a way. And so now what's happening is all of these small and mid-sized and regional banks, remember America has almost 5,000 banks, all of these guys uh, are facing deposit outflows. And the result of those deposit outflows are that they're having to sell government securities. And if they're having to sell those government securities at a loss, it's going to crush their capital. And all of a sudden, you're going to have hundreds, if not a thousand banks that could be in a difficult situation as far as capital is concerned. And so instead of that, what they're basically saying is all you guys can come to the Fed and you can pledge that security at 100%. We'll hold those losses for a year. They can only pledge them for a year. We'll hold those losses for a year. And at the end of the year, we'll figure out what we're going to do. Now, the next question is, is this quantitative easing? Well, there's some people that say that this is not quantitative easing because it's a swap so that it's just one asset on the balance sheet of a bank is a security. And now it's been swapped out as cash. So technically, you could say that when you're swapping assets with the central bank, it's not really a, a QE. However, a second reason why people say that it may not be QE is because it's also a short-term situation where in one year, those assets are going to go right back and the losses are going to go onto the bank's balance sheets. Well, come on. You think that the Fed, if things go bad and things aren't doing well in a year from now, they're going to force all these, if they couldn't have the banks handle the losses now, how are they going to have the banks handle the losses then? And so I would argue that this can easily be extended and it could even go to infinity. It could say, we're just going to take all the treasury bonds that we're now holding that the banks have pledged to us and we're going to hold them until maturity. And at the end of maturity, we're going to get the full payment out of them. Very possible it could be extended. So that's the first part of this. And then of course, there are banks, bank lending that's happening from the Fed into the banks uh, through the uh, through the discount window is one of the methods that they lend to banks. So this brings us to the next question is, is this QE or not? Well, one of the best ways to understand this is just look at the assets of the balance sheet. Remember that for the past year or so, the central bank of the US, the Fed has been telling us that they're doing quantitative tightening and quantitative tightening means they're reducing the size of their balance sheet. And also quantitative tightening has to do with, you know, increasing interest rates. So they're tightening the environment for, and the cost of money. 
So we've been on this quantitative tightening. Now, from my experience and what I've seen in the banking system, as well as with the Fed, my prediction is quantitative tightening won't last for long. Eventually, quantitative easing will come back. Why? Because now the U.S. is in such a situation where it just can't bear pain. Politicians can't bear pain. Uh, individuals can't bear pain. And if you're bringing pain upon the system, you're going to get voted out of office. You're going to get ridiculed. Why let them bear pain when you can solve this problem? And that's the, one of the reasons why looking at the repeated pay, uh, times that the Fed tried to get off of quantitative uh, tightening or quantitative easing, they wanted to do quantitative tightening. Every time they did it, they barely did it. And then eventually they had to reverse it and they had to go back to quantitative easing. So the answer to the question that I asked at the beginning is this the end of quantitative tightening and the beginning of QE? Yes, it is. How do I know? Because the assets of the, the balance sheet or the assets of the Fed just increased after roughly a year of small decreases. It increased by nearly $300 billion as a result of them providing uh, funding and buying the assets from the banks. So the answer to that question is yes, we are now into QE5. How long it will last? Well, that's a whole nother issue. Now, also, just to uh, highlight something else that just came out uh, that's quite interesting that makes me um, try to think about what's happening uh, with the banking sector, how they're going to work it out. Let's look at the March 16th joint statement by the Department of the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, which we saw in the previous announcements, but also the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. So now they brought in another person. Here is the announcement on March 16th, and that is the following statement was released by the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell, FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg, and Acting Comptroller of the Currency, Michael Su. Today, 11 banks announced $30 billion in deposits into First Republic Bank. This show of support by a group of banks is most welcome and demonstrates the resilience of the banking industry. Okay, so basically they encouraged the banks to provide deposits at First Republic Bank because deposits were running out by individuals. And so these big banks basically said, we're going to come in and we're going to support this bank. Now, you can't do that with all banks in the system, but in, in a case-by-case -case basis, they were able to do that. Now, if more banks face trouble and the other big banks have to do that, that brings up a whole nother challenge. Now, this is where rumors started swirling about Warren Buffett. Some people were tracking on Twitter. I saw posts about how all these jets were coming into Omaha. Maybe they were going to go see Warren Buffett. Maybe Warren Buffett would take a stake in the banking system. Well, it's very possible, if you recall, during the 2008 crisis, Goldman Sachs was about to go bust. And they did two things that really helped them stay alive. The first thing was a little bit of a trick. Goldman Sachs is not a depository type of bank taking deposits. But what the Treasury Department, who was led by a former Goldman Sachs uh, leader, uh, what the Treasury Department let Goldman Sachs do is call themselves a bank. And all of a sudden, that meant that they had deposit insurance guarantees. And that was one thing that that helped Goldman Sachs to uh, survive. The second one is that, uh, I, I believe, I don't remember the full details, but I believe that they issued a, uh, a bond to Warren Buffett earning a high yield. 
and a guaranteed bond by the assets of, of Goldman Sachs. And that provided a certain amount of liquidity that then they could say, not only did we get this liquidity, but we got the support of, of Warren Buffett. So it's very possible right now that something's going on. And let's say Warren Buffett says, okay, what are the 10 biggest regional banks I'll put in, you know, let's say $50 billion into those banks, but I, I need a guarantee from the government that that, that money's going to be paid back. And I need a guarantee from those banks that that money's going to get paid back. And I'm going to charge a high interest rate, let's say 8%, something like that. If Warren Buffett could lock in an 8% return for, let's say, 10 year, and he could do that with 50 to $100 billion, he's got plenty of cash to do that. It could be his final move to exit the, you know, his legacy by locking in an 8% return that's almost guaranteed by the government. What a remarkable uh, thing that he could do with that. So that's kind of my prediction is that, that something like that probably will happen. He may even say that, well, even more significant, I want these 10 regional banks, I want them all to combine into one. And then you create one massive bank and he makes a huge return. Let's say he also maybe wants equity. So he may say, I'm going to do a convertible bond and you're going to pay a high interest rate on that convertible bond. Let's say four, five, six, seven, eight percent And I'm going to be able to convert the bond into the shares of these individual banks or of one conglomerate bank that they make out of it. And I'm going to be able to do that at a certain price <clears throat> that's going to allow me to make an upside there. In the end, if he links it together with some equity, basically instead of an 8% fixed return, let's say, he may end up with a 15 or 20% return as this these banks survive and all of that. And so the end result is that I think it's very possible that Buffett, he's the only one probably that's got that much cash to do a deal. Now, it's important to remember that also, this brings us to the next thing, which is the Fed meeting that's happening this week. So is the Fed going to uh, keep raising rates? Well, going uh, two weeks ago or so, people expected that the Fed was going to increase interest rates by 50 basis points. Uh, and basically now people are expecting about 25 basis points, but it's very possible that the Fed says, well, that's it. We're not increasing rates anymore. Or there is even a slight possibility that the Fed says, we're cutting interest rates by 100% today. Boom. I mean, nobody's predicting that, but why would that be an important thing to do? All of a sudden, the losses on those bond portfolios that are there because the Fed increased interest rates so fast, the losses are <clears throat> already, boom. If you lower interest rates today, the losses on the portfolios, remember I, uh, we, we heard from the head of the FDIC that those losses were $620 billion. That $620 billion could go to $400 billion just like that if they immediately uh, lowered interest rates. And Or let's just say that the Fed says we're not going to lower interest rates, but uh, we're not going to lower interest rates, but we're not going to increase interest rates, meaning we're at the end of our tightening cycle. Inflation has come down. We're okay with that. And if they do that, then the next question is, over the next 12 months, will the Fed in decrease interest rates? Well, I think you're running into a real risk that we're facing a recession in the US. And that brings me to one of the questions I asked at the beginning of this is, are we facing a recession? And I think the answer is yes. The US in particular is heading into a recession. We've had an inverted yield curve, which is one of the best predictors of it. Uh, and that inverted yield curve has been telling us that there's a recession in the middle of 2023. And I think there's every reason to believe that that's going to be happening. Now, you may say, well, Andrew, unemployment's really low and all that. Well, keep in mind, that's like 
peak and just as unemployment peaks is the time that we then move into a recession. So a very, very low unemployment rate is actually a sign that we are heading into a recession. So the answer to the question about is there a recession coming in 2023, I think yes. And I think also we're going to have uh, some serious bank problems. But this comes to an interesting idea of ethics and insider trading. If the Fed is buying assets or making deals with someone like Buffett, as an example, that he can buy the bank's assets, and the Fed knows that it's likely that they could be reducing interest rates or just that the Fed does reduce interest rates, all of a sudden, you are buying assets or encouraging others to buy assets that you know are going to increase in value because interest rates are going to come down. Is that insider trading? That's a question that I think needs to be asked. And now I want to get into uh, the final part of this, which is talking about, you know, how does this affect the global banking system? Well, the first thing to remember, as I said right from the beginning, remember I talked about a snake and a snake like a, a python or a boa constrictor eating a huge animal and watching that move through the snake. Well, that's what was happening with the U.S. government giving out a tremendous amount of money out to businesses and to individuals. And that money went into the banking system and banking deposits increased massively during that time. This did not happen in most other countries around the world. Even in Europe, what we saw was that the, uh, the, the government basically provided funding to companies to keep people employed. So it wasn't a surge in the deposits. And so I would say the first thing is that um, banks around the world are not dealing with an a huge amount of deposits like Silicon Valley Bank was, as well as the US banking system. So that's good news. In addition, many of the other banks never printed a lot of money. And so they never had a liquidity situation like the US had. However, the next question that I want to try to answer is, is, is the US dollar going up or down? Well, this, I think, starts to relate um, with the statement that was made on March 19th. So that would be what Sunday, at the end of Sunday. And that is uh, March 19th, 2023. And it says, the title is Coordinated Central Bank Action to Enhance the U.S. Dollar Liquidity. The Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and the Federal Reserve, and the Swiss National Bank are today announcing a coordinated action to enhance the provision of liquidity via the standing U.S. dollar liquidity swap line arrangements. To improve, to improve the swap line's effectiveness in providing U.S. dollar funding, the central banks currently offering U.S. dollar operations have agreed to increase the frequency of seven-day maturity operations from weekly to daily. These daily operations will commence on Monday, March 20th, and will continue at least through the end of April. The network of swap lines among these central banks is, is a set of available standing facilities and serve as an important liquidity backdrop to ease strains in global funding markets, thereby helping to mitigate the effects of such strains on the supply to, of credit to households and businesses. Basically, what's, what's happening is that people are rushing into US dollar, they're rushing into government uh, treasuries, and the end result of that is that there is a squeeze in the euro dollar market. 
many, many companies uh, and businesses and banks throughout the world are trading in dollars and doing loans and swap agreements and all kinds of things in U.S. dollars. And basically what this is saying is that the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve is basically saying we are prepared to provide all the dollars necessary. And they've done this before when we faced a crisis and a tightening in uh U.S. dollar liquidity. So when U.S. dollar liquidity is so tight and people are concerned, they're scared, maybe the economies are doing poorly, what's happening is people, there's a rush to U.S. dollars. And this is saying, basically, we're going to uh, deal with this by making sure that there's plenty of availability of those U.S. dollars. And that's part of the problem that the U.S. faces as a reserve currency is that they not only have to deal with the liquidity that they have to provide of U.S. dollars in the domestic market, but they also have to deal with that in the international markets. And so this tries to answer the question that I was asking at the top, which is, you know, could this uh, spread to countries around the world? Could this be a global banking crisis? Well, I would say based upon the fact that other banks around the world did not get such a boom in deposits as happened in US because the US government could spend a tremendous amount, trillions of dollars, in stimulus that we have less of that um, that <clears throat> that animal that the boa constrictor or the python ate going through the system. So they definitely have less of that liquidity problem, but still interest rates have been rising around the world. US was most aggressive in those interest rates rise. But basically what you're seeing is that uh, there are pressures facing all the other banks around the world, but particularly let's say in Europe. Um, and so the result of that is that definitely we're starting to see some strains. And that brings us to what happened with Credit Suisse over the last week or so. Credit Suisse started struggling. They weren't able to raise additional capital, it looks like. And then <clears throat> eventually UBS appears to be uh, ready to buy Credit Suisse. But you can imagine that UBS is not going to buy Credit Suisse unless they get some sort of guarantees from the government. And so I'm sure that that's the negotiation that's going on right now. And again, whenever a banking crisis happens, what the regulators want and the government wants is for banks to merge and for all of that. So that raises another question, which is, is this a new banking crisis? Is it in the US? Is it globally? I would say this is a US banking crisis and we're in it right now. And we could uh, it could be the thing that leads us into a, a deeper recession. But also, one of the things that's interesting is that we also, this could force the Fed to reverse quantitative tightening and shift to quantitative easing. Remember, I had talked about the idea that they could reduce the interest rate uh, at this Fed meeting by 100 basis points or the next one or the next one and do an emergency reduction. Every time we see a crisis happening in the US, what do they do? It's like trying to take a heroin addict off of heroin. It's really good to take them off of heroin, but when you see them suffering the pain of withdrawals eventually and them screaming for that heroin, most people are going to give it to them. And so that's what the Fed does every time that the US faces a crisis and they lower the interest rate back down to zero. So I think it's very, very possible that we could see that the Fed starts decreasing interest rates. They've broken something. They've broken the banking system now with, with a massive rise and unheard of rise that they did in interest rates. And all of a sudden they're gonna have to reverse interest rate rises and then lower interest rates. And we could even see interest rates go to zero in the next couple of months. There is a very high likelihood of that happening. 
It's not what the Fed wants, but they may not have a choice in this case. If the interest rates on the Fed went down by 100, 200, 300 basis points or went down to zero, all of a sudden the unrealized losses on the balance sheets of the banks gone. Hey, problem solved. We just lowered rates again. Well, basically now we're back down to another decade possibly of zero interest rates and all kinds of problems that that causes. But I think that that is a very real possibility. And the end result of that, of course, is what happens when interest rates go down? Well, the losses on the bond portfolios basically reduce and the problem kind of goes away. And what happens to the equity market? Stock markets boom when interest rates go down. And so we have the potential, even though we're going into a potential recession, stock market's already down, it could go down further. But if the Fed announces that they're going to start cutting rates or people start to anticipate that, and eventually they do, that tends to be positive for the stock market. So it's very possible that we could have a big bounce in the stock market. And you could even argue that the financial sector could be the best performing sector because number one, they've already been knocked down. The weakest ones have been hit and the sector's down because everybody's terrified. But if the Fed reversed their policy and started to reduce interest rates, what would happen is like, holy crap, we thought this was gonna be bust, but now we can see that in fact, these banks are gonna survive. And so if that was the case, then you you could say that the financials could be a uh, a leading uh, performing uh, sector in the overall market. So I'm going to wrap this up. We looked at a lot of different things, right? Is this the new banking crisis? Did the Fed cause this? Yes, it is. And yes, the Fed caused it. And has QT ended? Yes, QT has ended. Are we in QE5? Yes, we've started expanding the balance sheet of the bank of the Fed. And if they start lowering interest rates, we are definitely moving into QE number five. Uh, could this spread uh, throughout the US or globally? Definitely, I think it can spread throughout the US, particularly if the Fed keeps interest rates high. We're gonna see more challenges in the banking sector. And could it spread globally? I would say less so globally because they haven't had such a boost in deposits that came from government stimuluses. Countries like Thailand, as an example, where I am, the government could not have printed that much money and then put it in the hands of businesses and uh, individuals, or otherwise the currency would have been crushed. The US dollar didn't get crushed because it is the reserve currency. So they have a privilege. And also the next question I had asked is, was this caused by the government or bad behavior by banks? Well, I would say it's mainly caused by the government. They kept interest rates low for a decade, more than a decade. And then all of a sudden they almost instantly rose interest rates from close to zero to 5%. And then they thought that they're not gonna break anything. Of course, things are gonna break in that case. So I would say, number one, government caused it from the beginning. And then they tried to solve inflation, they raised rates and now they've caused it again. And also you can blame the banks. If banks weren't properly hedged for interest rate risk, meaning that interest rates would rise and the value of their portfolios would fall, then they're also at fault and they should suffer, not be bailed out. Now, is the dollar going up? That was another question I asked at the beginning. And I think what you can see is that it's probably likely that dollar is going to be strong during this time because we've already seen the, the March 19th announcement that they're providing dollar liquidity. That means the dollar market is tight. So therefore, potentially strong dollar. Could this, uh, another question I asked at the beginning, could this trigger a much anticipated recession? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that this is really uh, messing up businesses and businesses' access to capital. And already there's a lot of fear out there. I think that the US recession is going to happen in the next few months. 
And how does this impact Fed tightening and inflation? I would argue that U.S. inflation is already on a trajectory to be down at about 4% by the end of 2023, uh, from as high as almost 7% or so. But basically, what I think is they're, they're done tightening relative to inflation. And we could even see a surprise announcement from the Fed this time or next time that they meet, or an emergency meeting that they're cutting the Fed funds rate by 100 basis points. Now, did the Fed finally break something with its aggressive rate rises? Well, I've been repeating over and over in my investment strategy that the Fed is eventually going to break something. And yes, they did. They did. This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host, so my worst investment ever. And also from the Become a Better Investor, Investor community, what do you think about this? I'm interested to hear where you think I'm right or I'm wrong in this analysis. Let's continue this discussion have a great day and I will see you on the upside.